And would you, would you turn with me in the Word of God to Acts chapter 16? Acts chapter 16, and our text this morning will be verses 5, or 6 through 15. Acts 16, verse 6 through 15. Will you stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? Verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. After they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord... Come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, May the Lord add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, as you look down at your Bible this morning, the text we've just read, if you look carefully, you'll see that there's a giant thumbprint smudged right upon the surface of the text. Or you can't see it with your visible eye. You can certainly see it with your spiritual eyes. You consider uh, what we have here, which is the unmistakable testimony to the sovereignty of God. We have, for instance, two times of uh, testimony in our text where we read that these missionaries were steered away from doing something that they had willfully intended and planned. Then as you come to verse 9, you see there, unmistakably, uh, a vision sovereignly given to the Apostle Paul, uh, which contained a message, come and help us. And then you arrive at verse 14, and you actually witness the missionaries engaged in the preaching of the Word of God, and there we are told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart in order that she may believe the things which were being spoken to her. So as you look at the details of the text, what you can't miss is that the hand of God has locked everything down. It's as if um, every step, every turn they took, uh, every place they stopped was all under the sovereign direction of God. 
which means that the result of all this directing is that they went to a specific place, they went to a specific person, and they saw a specific result, which was the sovereign salvation of Lydia. I started to think about that last week, and I I thought it's quite interesting... uh, as you look at all of this detail, that Luke has sort of scattered the breadcrumbs of testimony across this text about the sovereignty of God leading uh, right up to Lydia's doorstep. Why is that done? Why have all of this testimony about the sovereign directing of the steps of the missionary in conjunction with the telling of the story of the sovereign salvation of Lydia? If you think about that for a moment, I bet you will conclude what I did. That all of it is designed to teach us an important lesson. And what it says to us is uh, what it takes for God to save a sinner. It takes nothing less than for God to direct every single step, turn, and event. And then the preaching of the Word to place it right in the heart of that person whom God will save. It takes nothing less than a sovereign action of God to bring salvation. And so what I'm going to argue here this morning is from the specific example of Lydia, we learn a general lesson about how God works to save people and to bring them to Himself. And He does it interestingly for us, and this is the main point of our text, is that God sovereignly guides the missionary pursuits of His church. And it shows us in that sovereign guiding the absolute necessity of the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And so we want to think about that in three parts. God sovereignly directs uh, missionaries to places. God sovereignly directs missionaries to people. And then God sovereignly gives missionaries success. So let's think, first of all, about how God sovereignly directs missionaries to places. And here, obviously, it's to Macedon. And I want you to come back with me in your text and see these things for yourself. First of all, we have sovereign hindrances. Look at verse 6, for instance. We have back-to-back testimony here in verses 6 through 7 of sovereign hindrances. First of all, in verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Obviously, what's implied here is we have an intention. And we discern the intention at play here from the fact that we are told that the Spirit prevented them to speak the word in Asia, which then implies that that was their plan. They had set out on an intentional course. Here they are in southern Galatia, and they thought it would be most prudent for them to go west from where they were into Asia. Now, when you think of the word Asia, you might think this morning of the Orient. But that's not what's in view here. Asia is the name of an old Roman province. It would have been situated north and west from where they were. And probably the more specific reference to Asia here has to do with a number of coastal cities which were situated on uh, the Aegean Sea there, where there were some large cities, among which was Ephesus. And we know Paul had a desire to go there. We'll see him there at the end of this second missionary journey. But but the interesting thing is that Paul goes in a giant circle around the Roman Empire to finally come back to Asia or Ephesus at the end of his trip. 
But you see, uh, instead of going west and uh, really taking a shortcut to Ephesus, he took the long cut there, and over the way, uh, he was used by the Lord to plant many churches. But notice here what your text does say very explicitly, the Spirit hindered them. We have in verse 6, the forbidding work of the Holy Spirit. Having been forbidden, the text says... They pass through Phrygia and Galatia. See, the reason why Luke says, and basically what we do is we meet these missionaries traveling north. They're, they're kicking rocks up a, a mountain plateau through Phrygia up into northern Galatia uh, because, the text says, uh, the Spirit of God forbid them. And the verb comes in a passive form, and it says it was placed upon them. This hindrance came upon them, and and the power behind the hindrance was the very power of the Spirit of God. So what you have here, first of all, is a sovereign, hindering, restraining influence of God. So verse uh, verse 6 teaches you then about sovereign hindrance. Now look at verse 7. You have the second testimony of sovereign prevention. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to get into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Once again, what do you have but missionary intention? We were trying to go into Bithynia. In case you haven't looked on a map recently, Bithynia would be in the very northern portion of Turkey, situated underneath the Black Sea. And in that region, there were several very prominent cities, uh, such as Byzantium and Nicaea. But what's interesting here is they were in southern Galatia. They wanted to go west. The Spirit forced them to go north. And as they get up into the north, they try to go further north as they're here in uh, in Mysia. They're trying to go into Bithynia. And now the Spirit of God puts a halt to it all. says no further. And the language of the text is interesting because it speaks of frustration. It says they were trying to go in. And the verbal tense there suggests repetition. Uh, Paul, as he had thought about the guidance of the Spirit, he had wanted to go west. He had wanted to go to Ephesus. The Spirit very forcefully led them in the opposite direction to the north. And so you can see what was at play in Paul's thinking. Well, of course, if the Spirit of God is driving us north against our own will and intention, then it must be that what He has for us is to go way north and to minister these vast population areas up there. And so as He arrives on the border of Bithynia, He seems very frustrated here from the language, He kept on trying. That's the literal translation of your text. And now we've seen the missionary intent. Notice the sovereign hindrance once again. The Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of God, did not permit them. Now, obviously, the Spirit of God is directing their steps here. They wanted to go west, now they're going north, and then you come into verse 8, and you see what would be the the capping off of the narrative. And so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And the interesting thing here is kind of uh, interesting or humorous to us, because they wanted to go west while they were in the south. They went to the north, and they wanted to go north, and while they're in the north, finally the Spirit of God says, go west. So here you have in back-to-back verses... Very clear and unmistakable testimony to the sovereignty of God. I think you could see in negative terms what God did not permit them to do. What He hindered them from doing. 
As I said, there's a giant thumbprint smudged upon your text this morning. God's sovereignly at work. And, And now we see as they come to Troas, they receive another sovereign direction from God. And maybe we should speak for a moment about this city of Troas. It sounds familiar to you, but for the wrong reason. When you hear Troas, you probably think Troy. And then you remember back to your high school literature class when you read about Helen of Troy in Virgil's Aeneid, right? Well, it could have been a while ago, but that's there, okay? It's a long story. I won't get into it. I'm a lover of Greek classics. But at any rate, it's not that Troy. It's located about 25 miles south of that Troy, the city of Troas. It's a significant city. But what's most important to us is it's a port city. And here is where the missionaries would have found access to ships which are going west across the Aegean Sea to where? Macedon. So they're perfectly situated here in Macedonia. Now I want you to see the positive sovereign directing of God upon these missionaries here. Because now verse 9 says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now the language here is of a vision sovereignly given. The Word of God says here that a vision appeared, which means that that Paul's passive in it. Paul's not seeking it. He's just laying down to take a nap, and while he's sleeping in the middle of the night, the vision comes upon him. By the way, this word vision refers to a divine manifestation. For example, it's the same word that's used of Jesus as the transfiguration is described. They, they saw a vision of tabernacles there, and they met a couple of Old Testament personnel. Words used in a number of places in Acts, one of them being the vision of Peter and the vision of Cornelius. They are divine manifestations. It is a well-worn term for special revelation. This is a word from God, and it is a directional word. That's the thing that we want to know. It is a directional word. And that directional word comes from a very interesting image here as we read, a man from Macedonia was standing and appealing to us and saying, come over to Macedonia and to help us. Think about the elements. You have a man, first of all. Note that. A man. We're given no other uh, description of this person than he was a male. He is from Macedonia. That's important to the rest of the narrative here as we think about it. But really what's crucial about this are not those details, but the fact that you read that he is standing and that he is appealing. There's great urgency in the very uh, details that Luke uses to describe this vision. He's standing up and he is appealing, and this suggests emotional involvement. This is somebody who is using all of his powers of persuasion to intensely communicate a message. And the message is plain. Help. Come over and help us. Now you know that word help, usually when it's used in the Bible, is a cry for salvation from circumstances. 
So when you read about this man from Macedonia saying to these um, these uh, these missionaries, come over and help us, the logical conclusion to draw is that this man from Macedonia who they've never met before is crying out to them to come bring the gospel to him and to his region so they can be saved. That's what we would think, right? It's an intense appeal for ministry. And, you know, verse 10 tells us that's exactly what the missionaries concluded. Look at what we have here. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought, that's uh, the group of missionaries along with Paul, we sought to go into Macedonia. Here's your word. Concluding. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we learn something here about uh, missionary guidance, don't we? And the one thing that we can be sure of when we think about what goes into missionary guidance is the sovereignty of God's hand. It's all over the text, two different times. Uh, they are sovereignly prevented and hindered uh, and allowed from doing what they had intended and they had planned, so that's obvious to us here. Then you have the very positive intervention with God, of, of God here in the sovereign casting of a vision before the eyes of Paul. We can't doubt then that God sovereignly guides missionaries into doing His will. But then we have the means also that's involved, and that's on the human side. Because we said here they received this vision, this divine manifestation, which would be the same thing as Scripture for us, since God doesn't any longer use extraordinary means. He uses His Word to direct His church. But you see here, I want us to notice what it was also, besides the, the obvious sovereign guidance, is that God incorporated within that sovereign guidance their use of means. And we see that indicated in the word concluding. Now, what's so fascinating about this word concluding is going all the way back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle 300 years before this text, he uses this word to speak of demonstrating truth through logical means. So here they are thinking upon the Word, and then they're doing a little bit of logic together. They're constructing syllogisms. They're putting together major and minor premises to reach sound conclusions. And basically what you're told here by Luke is that as they thought upon the Word together, as they engaged together in dialectical reasoning, they drew a conclusion. It's kind of funny that he has to use a word like that because it seems fairly obvious to us, doesn't it? Duh. If a man from Macedonia says, come and help us, wouldn't you say, of course we're going to Macedonia. Honey, pack up the kids in the suitcase and let's go. But they thought about it, which tells us something very interesting about the means that God incorporates into the sovereign direction of his church and the mission is that we think together upon the word of God. We discern its principles. We think over its commands and its duties and its obligations. We think about the substance of what the Word teaches about these matters. And we discern God's way from the Word. And the result is they make a very intentional choice. It says here in verse 10 that they packed up and they had discerned that they were to go to Macedonia So they set sail. And the point that I want you to notice here is that God sovereignly directs missionaries to places. Right? That was our first point. 
God sovereignly directs His church into mission to specific places. You saw it. I showed you every single step of the way from, your, uh, from the Word of God. I'm not making this up. This is precisely what happened. They started in southern Galatia. They went west. They went north. They went west. They received a vision. Then they go west. All of it because at every single point and step of the way, God was leading them. And so you can't miss the obvious point here. In the first portion of our text, God sovereignly leads His church into mission to particular places. <laughs> There's something that I want to think about here by way of application before we move on to our next point. And it's this. I I think all of us, as we take in all of the data here and detail about the sovereign hand of God guiding them in what they're doing, none of us miss that. We all get that point. We all agree to that point. But here might be a wrong conclusion to take from it. Which is that we sit and wait until God says, go. What we might Uh, conclude, and it would be a false conclusion, is to say, well, I see here that they receive sovereign, clear, decisive direction from God, so the best way to take up missions is to just sit and wait until God shoves us out of the door. But that would run counter to the text if you drew that conclusion, because what I would have you notice, that at every single point along the way, where they encountered and experienced the sovereign hand of God directing them, they were doing what? They were doing mission. When they were in the south, they planned to go do mission in the west. God said no. So they went to the north and they planned to do mission in the west. They're already doing uh, the going of mission. He says, go west. And when they get west, they think maybe we'll just sit here in Troas and do mission here. No, God comes in, go over there. But the point that you take here from the text is that we don't wait until God kicks us out of the door, kicking and screaming, to go do something. We finally admit the sovereign hand of God is light, is leading us. What we learn from the text here is that the church receives the guidance while it's doing the obeying. You see, the call is for us as a part of our ordinary life to take up the mission that Jesus Christ gave His church and to engage in it. And while we are doing the work obediently, we can trust that as God, uh, as we pray and seek the Lord's direction, that He will lead us particularly. So you're in Brea. The church is in Brea. Well, this is where God would have us do mission. Where is your life? Who is your family? Who are your friends? Where do you recreate? Where do you work? Where do you live? That's exactly where God would have you just start. You don't have a choice this morning to say, well, I don't really like to do that. That's not what I do. God didn't give you that choice because He said, go. He gave it to everybody. He didn't just say, oh, it's for pastors or it's for the elders, for people who like to do it. So where you are is where you begin. And as you pray about that and where you are specifically, you can expect that God will direct your steps. That brings us into our second point. God sovereignly directs missionaries to people. We have a direction to a specific place. Now we have direction to particular people. We can notice just quickly here the travel route, which begins in verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Simothrace. And the day following went to Neapolis, uh, 
just quickly here, it's about 200 miles or 250 miles across the Aegean Sea from Troas to the port of Neapolis, which is in Macedon. And uh, as they went to Samothrace, uh, a detail included the text. I'm not sure why, but one thing that's interesting about it, it was the center of the worship of the mystery religions. It was an isolated island about halfway point in the journey, and that island contained a massive mountain that rises up from sea level to over 5,000 feet, and there the mysteries were celebrated. They stopped in the midst of paganism. They weren't permitted to stay there. They were driven from there to Neapolis, which is the harbor in Macedon. And then they traveled about 10 miles up to the city of Philippi, as you see in verse 12. And it says, and from there they came to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Let's just take a moment to think about Philippi. Uh, what's interesting here is we're told it's a prominent city, a leading city. And one reason why it was a leading city is because it was a rich city. It was uh, rich in natural resources. It is an old mining town, and uh, they mine for gold and silver and copper. The city of Philippi is named after the person who conquered it and made it for himself, uh, Philip of Macedon, who you will know is the father of Alexander the Great, one of the largest men in history. And so this place had been carefully crafted over the centuries into a first-rate, world-class city, which when the Romans conquered, they made it a colony, which meant when the Romans conquered a place, which was far away from Rome, and they made it a colony, it means that they filled it up with Roman citizens. The second thing we know about uh, Roman connection here is they pensioned off a bunch of their old uh, soldiers to the area. So it was populated by a bunch of veterans. And they had money, and then they have the natural resources in the city to have money, and all this seems to tie in to the money of Lydia. Now why talk about money? Because if you study Paul's travel logs and uh, offhanded statements that he makes throughout the rest of the New Testament about who is helping him, this city regularly comes up. The church in Philippi is always sending cash to Paul. Why? Because naturally they have the most money of most of the churches, it would seem. And so they come to a prime location for mission. Verse 12 says, uh, they got into town and the indications are as they began to stretch their legs and, and look around. They were there for some days. They probably got there if they left on Sunday morning. And they traveled across the AG, and they probably got there by Monday afternoon, which meant they had the whole week to scout out the city of Philippi and to see how to evangelize it. It was in Macedonia. They knew it was the right place because the vision said, come help us. They had been directed to the city, and so we get the impression that they, uh, they kicked around the city a bit, and they decided that they had found a way to go about evangelizing it. And interestingly enough, the way to evangelize the city was to not stay in the city, but go outside of it. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we are supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So here they are outside the city. 
probably as far as a mile or mile and a half out because we're told in a moment that they went to a riverside and there's a giant river there, the Gangites River. And they went what's called a, a place of prayer. What's interesting about that word is every other time you find that word used in the New Testament, it refers to a synagogue. But you scratch your head and you say, what in the world? Could, could this be a synagogue all the way uh, out in the countryside? Why? And then it feels less likely that it's a synagogue when you read about who is there. And I don't say this in disparaging terms, but the text makes it clear that the only people who showed up that morning were women. And now that's in no way um, being chauvinistic. Likely what it means is that they were following the Jewish rule. You see, we have no indication that these were Jews themselves. They were devoted to Judaism, it would seem, yes. They were adherents, if you will. They were proselytes, if you will. But according to Jewish policy, there had to be ten males in a city in order for them to constitute a synagogue. And the fact that this place is located outside of town by a riverside, and there's only women there, suggests that they are quite likely the only people of Jewish faith in town. And so what did they do? Well, they did... What Jews in that situation would do, or proselytes, or adherents to Judaism would do, well, they'd find a place to gather and pray and sing the Psalms. I'm sure you've already spotted what's ironic though, right? Verse 9, Luke went out of his way to say that in the middle of night, a man appeared to him in the dream and said, come help us. And when they went to come help them in Macedon, what do they find but women? And so now the spotlight turns to Lydia. Not just the group of women in general, but now the spotlight turns specifically to Lydia because here's where the lesson comes in for the people of God. Notice here, we're told a few things about Lydia. We're told here, first of all, that she was from the city of Thyatira. Again, there's just uh, one more of these notes of irony or humor in the text, because uh, the city, I hope I'm not boring you with too many Bible nut details this morning, but you have to, because that's how the text is constructed. And see, remember, they're, they're, they're on the western side now of the Aegean Sea in Macedon, and they run across this lady named Lydia, who's from Thyatira, and guess where she's from? She's from Asia, where they wanted to go. Their, their intention was to go to Asia, and uh, the Lord in His providence smiled upon them to win somebody from Asia. They're just going to have to go to Macedon to do it. But something else that's interesting about Thyatira is it was the place where you learned how to make things out of purple. A couple of different ways they made purple things in the ancient world. One was from mussels of fish, and another was from a particular root. But Thyatira specialized in purple. And so that's what you learn here about Lydia. You learn here that she was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. 
And what's important about purple fabrics is that people who wanted to buy purple stuff were people who were wealthy. It was the apparel of nobility. But it was also the apparel of the upper class, which means this was a woman who was made of cash. Her trade, her fortune, her business was all wrapped up in this unique business of being somebody who could make stuff out of purple. But then the punchline is this. She was a worshiper of God. Right away that stands out to us in the text, particularly in view of what follows next. But at least for the moment, what we gather here is that this, um, this was somebody who was born in paganism and somehow by the providence of God comes in within the gates as a proselyte to Judaism. She has reverence for God. She has reverence for the Word of God. She has reverence for the rituals of worship which are outlined in the Word of God. But what we discern is she's not yet a believer. She's not yet in the kingdom. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, let's say, she's been providentially prepared because the last thing I call your attention to at this point is after this string of things, a woman, Lydia, Thyatira, purple, worshiper, notice what says, listening. See, she's had her heart bent in a certain way now. She's reverently hearing the Word. All this is so fascinating to us here this morning, people of God, because it shows us how God is at work. But now I want you to notice what's really the heart of the story. We've seen all of the details about the sovereign directing of the missionaries to a place and then to a person, and now notice the success. First of all, we're told that she was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things which were spoken by Paul. The first thing I have us notice here when we see that God gives the success in our missionary endeavors is He does it through means. The Apostle Paul doesn't show up there by the riverside and break out his juggling act. He doesn't put on a dramatic presentation of the story of Jesus Christ and His passion. I don't need to relate to you all of the goofiness that's done in the name of Christ to be evangelistic today. But the point that we discern from the text here is that when God aims to reach into the heart of His elect and bring them to Christ, to draw them to Christ, He does, first of all, through the use of means... And that means is the preaching of the Word of God. When Paul aims to win his first fruit to Christ in Macedonia, in the city of Philippi, he breaks open the Word of God and he preaches. We can't help but notice that. The Word of God preached as the means to win souls to Christ. And it's in that context, that situation, that moment of the Word being preached. And and here, uh, this person who's been prepared by God, Lydia is listening. Now God sovereignly breaks through. Because notice the powerful language in the text. The Lord opened her heart. 
Now, this is a word that plain as day means open. In order for us to grab, I would say, its force, we should probably consider uh, an illustration of its use. And there's a powerful illustration of its use in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 45. You don't have to look it up, but you can just listen. You're told there that Jesus opened the minds of His disciples to understand. You see, he's just referenced it in the verse before the things which had been written about him that he must suffer in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Those are the three headings of the Old Testament according to Judaism. You have the law, you have the prophets, and you have the writings. And the Psalter was the the first book of that scroll of the writings. So Jesus, by using this breakdown, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, is, is honoring that threefold structure of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, those speak of Him. But now in verse 45, before He commissions them to go speak what those Scriptures say about Him, this is what He does. He opened their minds to understand. And the obvious and clear implication of all of this is that apart from that sovereign opening by the Spirit of Christ, the Bible was a closed book. And isn't that the problem? When Jesus in His public ministry would open up the Word of God and say, these things speak of Me. People said, what? I don't see that in my Bible. And the reason is because the book was closed to them without the supernatural illumination of the Spirit of God. They had to have their minds open. And these were the disciples. These were the people who had been with Him. These were the people who had seen the miracles. These are the people who are right now looking at the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they still can't understand. Their minds are too feeble. They're too calloused with darkness. They don't have the ability. That's the sense here. Look at Lydia. She's a beautiful, wonderful person on every measure. She's industrious. She's hardworking. She is skilled. She's a worshiper. She's a listener. And yet, she can't lift a finger to save herself. God had to open her heart. That is, her mind. What you have here, people of God, is that uh, illustration of that powerfully profound statement of the preacher in the book of Hebrews when he speaks about the Word of God for what it is. He says, it is a sharp sword which pierces down uh, to the very depths of the heart. It's a discerner, he says, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It lays them bare. It is able to sever between joints and marrow. And without that, without the Spirit of God taking the Word of God into the depths of the heart, there's listening but no responding. But thank God for what you see here. The Lord ripped her heart wide open to... See, there's a purpose in it. To respond. That's fine enough as a translation. You could have a better one because really it means to hold or believe firmly. I know it's not the typical word for belief, but that's what the word means. 
So the point of it is here, in order for her to believe or to hold firmly to Christ, God had to sovereignly open her heart and sink the word of the gospel deep within her. God sovereignly grants missionary success. Now you see what I'm saying. You have the the coupling of these things together. The sovereignty of God over their steps. He sovereignly sends them to a place. He sovereignly sends them to a people. But that's not enough yet for you to come to Christ. God still has to do some other work. He has to sovereignly give the success to the word preached. All of this is stated in a very beautiful way in that old Reformation document, the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, it talks about the way of salvation in several of the catechism questions and answers about how it's about the the righteousness of Christ being imputed to our account and that the way that is accessed is by faith and not by works. But then it asks a great question. I know how it is that I get there, but here's what I don't know. How do I believe? Where does faith come from? That's what the question asks in question 65. Since we are saved by faith apart from works, it says whence comes or where comes this faith? And the simplest, clearest answer of this from a perspective is set forth right there. The Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel. But see, there's two parts to it. Ask yourself the question this morning. Why do two unbelieving people sit under the exact same gospel message and one walks away with faith and one walks away with unbelief? Is the problem in the Word of God? No, it's the same message. So what we have to do is account for how the same gospel message is preached to the same exact people, at least in the same condition, and only one walks with faith while the other walks away saying, I don't get it yet. And by the way, that's exactly what happened here. She was with an entire group of women, but what Luke does is he zooms now into very narrowly, not the women, but a woman, and only records for us that she responded. So it seems like the situation before us happened on that day. We have all of these people in the same exact spiritual condition, hearing the exact same spiritual message, and only one of the group walks away with faith. Why? Is the defect in the word preached? Did somebody doze off during the middle of the sermon? No, the answer is both parts of the question. The Holy Spirit works faith through the preaching of the gospel. We have to have as a necessary condition, or rather an essential condition, that the word preached is there, but the necessary and essential condition is it's not just the word preached, but now the Holy Spirit takes that word and He brings it home to the heart of the person who hears. And in so doing, works faith. You see, the difference between why one person walks with faith and the other doesn't is stamped right upon this text. It is the sovereign, regenerating, opening of the heart work of God in that person so that they respond with faith. 
You see, the means must be empowered in order for the Word to be made effectual. Calvin, as usual, is able to say it so pithily in so few words. Ministers do no good by teaching and speaking unless the inward calling of God is added. We can speak all day. We can speak till we're blue in the face. We can see the most profound things in the world. But no one can lift a finger to save themselves unless, as Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, they cannot come to me. John 6.44 And that's what happens here. God sovereignly sent missionaries to the place. God sovereignly sent missionaries to the person. God sovereignly gave success in mission by opening her heart to believe. And that, people of God, is the good news for us today. As we uh, wind towards conclusion, we apply this main point, and let's refresh ourselves of the main point, which is the sovereign guidance of the Lord in the pursuit of Christian mission highlights the absolute necessity of God's sovereignty and salvation. God's sovereign guidance of missionaries highlights the necessity of the sovereignty of God in salvation. We've seen the direction positively and negatively, and all that led to Luke spotlighting this sovereign success story of conversion. And what it all tells us is that unless God takes the word, it can be driven right up to your doorstep, but it'll never go into your heart unless God wills and unless God does it by a work of the Holy Spirit. It takes nothing less than a sovereign action of God. Calvin, again, such is the blockishness, such is the blindness, that in seeing they see not, in hearing they hear not until God gives them new eyes and new ears. Here's the offensive message of Christianity. You can't do it. Why do so many Christians sit around saying you can? We're not making this up. You all saw it with your own eyeballs here this morning, didn't you? Why are so many misrepresenting what's so obviously taught everywhere in the Bible? You can't do it. Such is the blockishness. Oh, that's probably why we don't see that, because it's offensive. It's not flattering. Everybody thinks that we're okay. And if you do have a problem in your life, just go to 12 Steps. <laughs> Read a book. Your problem is much deeper than conforming your outward behavior to standards. The problem is, deep down in your heart, you can't change unless God, in His grace, sovereignly changes you. Why? Because the Word of God says, the heart is deceived above above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9, which means we can have nothing without the grace of God. 
You say, oh man, that's really bad news. I thought you were going to tell, tell me good news this morning. But that is the good news. Because of our sinfulness and our stubbornness and our rebellion, we can't get anywhere unless God does for us what He did for Lydia. He took missionaries deep in the heart of southern Galatia who wanted to go to the west, to the north, and went to the north and wanted to go to the north. He took them to the west. And when He took them to the west to look for a man, He led them to a woman. The good news for us this morning, people of God, is that God moves heaven and earth to bring His people to Christ. That's the good news. And oh, how many times do we hear people in their testimony say, I was kicking rocks down the road of life, messing everything up all by myself, empty, confused. My life was a mess. And then God sent this person into my life. God put me under the preaching of the gospel. And God changed me. You see, people of God, this is the good news, that He will move heaven and earth as He did here to lead people into looking like they're the clumsiest Christians in the world, stumbling this way and that way and confused about where they're going until all of a sudden He pulls the scales off their eyes and He says, right here in front of you is the person I want you to talk about Christ to. You didn't even know. And then, when that word is preached, when that gospel message is laid open, God does the work. In Lydia's conversion, we see a picture of our conversion. We see a a picture of every conversion. God doing everything to secure our standing in Christ. That's a wonderful message, isn't it, this morning, people of God? We're just like this lady Lydia. Or we may be selling purple, having some reverence for God. But then all of a sudden, the powers of heaven from above come upon our hearts and set us free. And He helps us through His sovereign grace to believe and to respond. If you have faith this morning, it's because of this. And if you have that, then let's use that old line from the Word of God to give them thanks. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a sovereign gift of God, lest we should boast. Father, we thank you for uh, this great word about your great work. And the wonderful thing about it this morning is it's not cluttered up by our works or anybody's works, apostles' works, missionaries' works. Every bit of it is, is a story. Uh, thread through and through with the message of your sovereign hand working graciously to bring your people to yourself savingly by grace. And uh, Lord, as we have tasted of your mercy, help us to remember and to be reminded yet again one more time of that wonderful message uh, that we have been saved uh, by grace and not of works. So deliver us from any tendencies or proneness to haughtiness or pride. 
remind us this morning of the proper lowliness of mind and humility of heart, which is fitting for those who've been saved by grace. Uh, We are so ready now, Lord, having been reminded yet again of the freeness and the sovereignty of your mercy to give you all the praise and the glory, for it's due to you and to you alone. Lord, help us to be impressed with these matters as we go forth now to serve you in a week ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.